0: To um, ask the children, well, you get to escape my sermon, so you're free to go. Make sure your parents stay behind, though. I'd like to invite you to turn once again to the Gospel according to John, John's account of the life and ministry of Jesus as we continue our study in that book. As you turn there, allow me to remind you once again of the why John wrote. This particular gospel, in John chapter 20, verses 31, verse 30 and 31, it's reported that he wrote this gospel so that we, the readers, would first of all believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing that we would have eternal life in his name. That's life both now and forever. In chapters 1 and 2, John presents evidence for Jesus' deity. That Jesus was, in fact, God dressed in human flesh. Chapter 1 uses the words of others, and chapter 2 uses the works of Jesus. First words, and then works, testifying of his deity. The words of others in chapter 1 are actually eyewitnesses' testimony. First of all, the Apostle John begins by offering his own testimony in verses 1 through 18. These verses are often referred to as the prologue to the book. They present one of the most concentrated, definitive Christologies in the entire Bible. Following his testimony, John the Baptist is called to the witness stand. And then following John the Baptist, we hear from four of Jesus' earliest disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter, Philip, and then finally Nathanael, all testifying in their own words that this is the Christ, the Son of God. In chapter 2, there are two works, or signs, to use the terminology that the Apostle John uses, Performed by Jesus. First, Jesus turns water into wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, and then on a trip to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, he clears out the temple's outer court of sellers, their animals, and money changers. Verse 11 of chapter 2 describes these works, or signs, as manifestations of his glory. In other words, They, too, are intended to point to the true identity of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, God dressed in human flesh. The final three verses of John chapter 2 report that as a result of many of these signs that Jesus performed while he was in the city of Jerusalem, many believed in his name, but Surprisingly, Jesus did not entrust himself to them. The sign-based or sign-dependent belief paired with Jesus' knowledge of humanity prevented him from entrusting himself to them. So last week, we examined the first 15 verses of John chapter 3. Here we were introduced to a man, a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews and the teacher of Israel. It was Nicodemus who actually took the initiative, you'll remember, to come and approach Jesus. He may not have had a, a sign dependent belief, but he certainly had a sign dependent curiosity. He wanted to know more about this teacher. But Jesus hijacked Nicodemus' initiative and turned it into a teachable moment. A teachable moment that's focused on being born again, or born above, or spiritual rebirth. And so as a result of this Jesus-Nicodemus encounter, we now understand that Jesus is indeed prepared to entrust himself to people who believe in his name, with a belief in his name that involves a spiritual rebirth, being born again, or being born from above. We discovered last week to be born or reborn spiritually is, first of all, essential. Look at verse 3. The end of the verse. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then verse 5. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So it's essential. Secondly, it's spiritual. Verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Thirdly, it's avoidable. Verse 11, you do not accept our testimony. So by refusing to believe in his name, by rejecting their testimony, rebirth can be avoided. But fourthly, it's available in verse 15, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. In the same way that the Israelites looked to that serpent That bronze serpent in Numbers chapter 12, in order to be saved physically from death, anyone who looks to Jesus, believing in him as the Christ, the Son of God, will in him have eternal life. And that's where we left off last week, at the end of verse 15. That brings us to the passage that we want to consider this morning, John chapter 3, verses 16 to 21. How many have red-letter edition Bibles with them this morning? And those of you who have red-lettered edition Bibles, that's Jesus' words are printed in, in red ink. How many of you have verses 16 to 21 in red? A good number. That is actually debatable. You see they're not sure who, well, obviously some people felt that these are words coming from Jesus that he spoke. But there are others, and for good reason, see these as an explanation of the Apostle John as he sat back and reflected on Jesus' exchange with Nicodemus. Let me be clear, this is all the word of God. So ultimately it probably doesn't even matter who actually spoke it whether it was John reflecting and giving an explanation of of what he heard and saw or whether it's actually Jesus speaking this is scripture and we know that all scripture is inspired by God or god-breathed and is profitable for teaching correcting rebuking and training in righteousness 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 Or 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 21 reads, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit from God. So regardless of who said it, I do think these verses kind of pull back the curtain so that we get a a peek behind the scenes at eternal life. Do you remember me talking early in this study about um, the different perspectives on the gospel, specifically how the gospel of John compares to the synoptic gospels in terms of perspective? Matthew, Mark, and Luke share a similar perspective, and the gospel of John is just totally unique. It was suggested that the first three view Jesus' life from an earthly view, from earth up. Whereas when we turn to the Gospel of John, he gives us a a heaven-down look at the life and ministry of Jesus. So as a result, John's presentation becomes much more theological than the others. And so here in John chapter 3 verses 16 to 24, we should not be surprised that we catch a, a glimpse of eternal life from heaven down. That's the perspective. And as he gives us that perspective, what I find here here in verses 16 to 21 are three foundational theological pillars supporting eternal life in him. So what? Well, these three pillars will give us courage and confidence to increasingly demonstrate and celebrate our unique relationship with God as we as we reflect on on these three pillars and in addition to that they will inform and motivate us as we share our faith with family, friends, colleagues associate and with anyone else who will take the time to listen. demonstration, Proclamation, celebration. Those three essentials to a biblical church. And that's what can happen when God's people actually catch a glimpse of this eternal life from a heaven-down perspective. Whoever believes will in him have eternal life. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading from God's Word this morning. I want to begin chapter th- 3 and verse 1, and we'll read th- down through to the end of verse 21. Allow me to read it for us. John chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, We speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. You may be seated. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. That certainly acknowledges your transcendence. And yet the psalmist paints a different picture. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Father, would you do all of that for us this morning? For those needing rest, Make us lie down. For those needing direction, lead us. For those wrestling with their brokenness, restore our souls. For those plagued with sinful habits, guide us in paths of righteousness. By your spirit, through the teaching of your word, And for your glory, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Whoever believes will in him have eternal life. What a promise. I've lifted the central idea for this morning's message right out of the text. Did you notice verse 15? so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. There it is. But notice it's a promise with a condition. And although Jesus was speaking to one of the very best that Judaism had to offer, the condition remained. Whoever believes, for both Israelite and non-Israelite alike, that, my friends, would have rocked Nicodemus's world. His view of God would have been blown away. And and maybe your world has been rocked as we've studied this life and ministry of Jesus. You've found yourself wondering in the recesses of your own mind and heart, have I ever really, truly believed in Jesus? Believed in a way that would Find him entrusting himself to me. Let me just say that the fact that you're asking or entertaining such questions would suggest that the Spirit of God is at work in your life. Just the fact that you're asking that kind of question. And that's a good thing. Let me share, just take a few moments to share some verses from the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Rome that we may find helpful. First of all, Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there are no exceptions. All of us have sinned and fall short of the standard of perfection that God requires for relationship with him. It includes all of us. Romans 6:23 says, the wages of sin is death. In other words, the consequences of the sins that we've all committed results in in death. Physical death, certainly, but even more significantly, a spiritual death. And spiritual death refers to a separation from God for all eternity in a place that the scriptures refer to as hell. That's bad news. The good news is found in the second half of Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 reads, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus Christ died in our place for our sins. His death paid the price for my sin and for your sin. And Jesus' resurrection proves that God accepted that death on behalf of our sins. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 tells us how we can respond appropriately to that demonstration of God's love for us. Listen to these words. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And it is with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation, I hope that's helpful. Regardless of where you are in your relationship with God this morning, we're delighted that you're here worshiping with us. And please let us know if there are things that we can be doing to help you understand or grow in that relationship. That's what we're here for. And know that if we're able we will. If we're able, we'll help. We'll do what we can to help. And certainly, at the very least, we'd count it a privilege to be able to pray with you. And who knows, maybe, maybe that's the most significant thing we could possibly do for one another. But whoever believes, will in him have eternal life an eternal life supported by three foundational theological pillars. And foundational theological pillar number one in this passage of Scripture is the love of God. God's love ensures that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Notice verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The word translated world there is used by the apostle 78 times in this gospel account and another 24 times in his letters that follow. Without exception, it is a general term used in reference to the world of humanity. And that humanity are standing in opposition to God. That's how this word is used. They oppose the plans and purposes of God. That's the world that he's talking about. Hear these words from John chapter 15. verse. In fact, let's turn there. John chapter 15, beginning at verse 18. Remember, this is the same world. Verse 18 of John chapter 15. If the world hates you, that humanity that stands in opposition to God hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. He's speaking to his disciples. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this The world hates you. And yet, this is the very world, the very world that God loves. A world full of sinful people who want nothing to do with him. I just read Romans chapter 5 verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Again, this would have turned Nicodemus's world, his God view, upside down. You see, Jews saw themselves as being the exclusive recipients of God's love. They were the apple of His eye. In fact. They saw his plan was to reach that world through them, the Israelites. But G- John makes it clear, for God so love the world. And that has some huge implications for you and I as we attempt to represent him as ambassadors for Christ in the midst of a sinful, filled world. No one beyond, is beyond the love of God. God's love extends to the whole world, and so should ours. Regardless of ethnicity, political preference, social standing, personal histories, this could go on and on and on. There are no exceptions. God's love extends to the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. One commentator points out that the construction of this sentence in the Greek really emphasizes the intensity of God's love and also stresses the greatness of the gift. The NASB translates it, his only begotten son. Others use his one and only son. Literally, it means his unique or his one-of-a-kind son. Now, speaking as a father of three sons, I can't begin to imagine losing one of them. And I hope and pray that I never have to travel through that valley. And I know all the pot answers. I know them. God's grace is sufficient. All things work together for good. But still, no thank you. I'm not interested. And yet, some of you have been forced to travel that road. And so you will have a greater appreciation for this than the rest of us. God's love involved an unimaginable sacrifice. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. A couple of things I would like us to notice. First of all, it is whoever believes. Once again, we see that non-discriminatory offer. I know it is a verse that has been hijacked to support an egalitarian position, but Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, should not be avoided. It informs us that our relationship with God is not defined by ethnicity, social standing, or sex or gender. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Relational access to God is open to all who will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The second thing I'd like to point out is the consequences. Remember that illustration that I shared a number of weeks ago that Mark Bailey has in his book? The punchline to the illustration went something like, you can choose the action or the consequence, but you can't choose both. So if we choose eternal life, then we must believe. But if we choose not to believe then the consequence is to perish. We cannot choose both to to not to believe and experience eternal life. You cannot choose both. It is either the action you choose or the consequence, one or the other. And there's only two consequences from which to choose. To perish or to have eternal life. And to perish is synonymous with spiritual death. So God's love provides an escape hatch. Whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. An eternal life founded on the love of God. Foundational theological pillar number two, the purpose of God. God's purpose ensures that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. Notice verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. God's desire has been that everyone would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It always has been and always will. In other words, that they would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. That's his desire. God loves us and wants a relationship with each one of us. We can say that with all confidence. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 4. God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's His desire. And again, 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9, we read, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish but that all would come to repentance. It is not God's desire for anyone to spend another minute outside of a relationship with him. And that's why God sent Jesus, not to condemn, but to save. Jesus himself said, For the Son of Man comes to seek and to save that which is lost. Luke 19.10 His personal mission statement in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's the one God sent. Not to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Clearly, God's purpose was redemptive. Have a look at verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged, He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. God's purpose was definitive. Let me explain what I mean by that. You've probably heard me say this before. It has become kind of a life mantra. The first responsibility of leadership is to define reality. The last is to say thank you. And in between the two, we are both servant and debtor. Here we find God defining reality. Number one, he loves us and wants a relationship with every one of us. Number two, we are born totally depraved. And that does not mean that we're as bad as that we can be. It does not mean that. But what it means is that sin has permeated every part of who we are. Socially, relationally, physically, emotionally, our whole person has been polluted by sin. That's what we mean by the total depravity of man. Thirdly, because of our inherent sinful nature, we're alienated from God. The scriptures indicate that we're actually enemies of God. And fourthly, We stand condemned and face a Christless eternity. That's the reality that God wants us to understand. For those who do not believe, they stand condemned already, according to verse 18. We are all born sinners. We don't become sinners when we commit our first sin. We are born with a sin nature. When we do sin, what we do is actually prove what the scriptures have been saying about us all along. But God, the good news is, because of his great love for us, God has purposed to have no judgment against anyone who believes in his name, in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, so that whoever believes in him will in him have eternal life. An eternal life founded on the love of God, an eternal life embedded in the purpose and plans of God. Foundation theological pillar number three, the grace of God. God's grace ensures that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Look at verse 19 and 21. This is a judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, And does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. Let me begin by saying that judgment delayed is not judgment denied. Let me say that again. Judgment delayed is not judgment denied. Sometimes I think we, we think we get away with it. You know what I mean? We commit a sin and there's no consequences or immediate consequences attached to it. And we leave saying, whew, got away with one. Judgment delayed is not judgment denied. And then there's the issue of our deceitful hearts. We can justify rationalize, blame, ignore, and the list can go on and on and on. But the motivation is always the same. We enjoy sin. And sin is always enjoyable for a season. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a temptation. The Apostle John identifies the challenge that we face in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The New Living Translation offers, for the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possession. These are not from the Father, but are from the world. And I'd just like to admit that these are powerful cravings competing for our love and attention. And they mask the consequences. We do well to remember the Apostle Paul's warning in Romans chapter 14, verse 12. So then each one of us will give an account to himself, to God. Hebrews 4, 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Please remember, judgment delayed is not judgment denied. Don't play that game. The rest of verse 19 and verse 20 make it pretty clear. Judgment is deserved. It's deserved. Darkness, sin, evil, verse light. Which will you choose? The choice seems pretty simple while we sit here on Sunday morning in corporate worship at the Rock Community Church, but how about the rest of the week? Point is, left to ourselves, none of us would pursue this kind of redemption. The narrow path. Apart from God's intervention, darkness, sin, evil wins every day. All the time. In our unregenerate state, as unbelievers, enemies of God, we have a natural aversion to light. And so when you pick up that rock or that piece of wood that's been laying out on the ground for for months, and all those grubs and slimy little things start scurrying for the darkness... That's like us. We love the darkness. Remember what happened to Adam and Eve when they disobeyed God way back in the Garden of Eden? Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 reports, They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, how ridiculous is that? trying to hide yourself from an omnipresent, omniscient God. But that's just like sin. Sin is always irrational and self-destructive. But the Adam and Eve episode, from that time forward, humanity has engaged in a ridiculous game of hide-and-seek from the one from whom nothing is hidden. In fact, we just read it, all are naked and exposed to his eyes, in whom we must give an account. Judgment is deserved. I so appreciate how verse 21 begins. Did you notice? But we needed that. God's grace empowers believers. Judgment or the freedom to practice the truth by the power of God. Judgment, or the freedom to practice the power of the truth, the truth by the power of God. That, my friends, is grace. And you've heard the acronym for grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Romans 8.32 reads, Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? In 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. God's grace. Concerning that last phrase in verse 20, as having been wrought in God is the way the NASB translates it. D.A. Carson offers this explanation. This strange expression makes it clear that the lover of light is not some intrinsically superior person. I love that. We're not some, because we love the light, it's not that we're intrinsically superior. If he or she enjoys the light, it is because of all that has been performed all that has been done through God in union with him and therefore by his power. He gets all the credit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. God's grace empowers us. Believers, so that whoever believes will in Him have eternal life, both now and forever. Eternal life is founded on God's love, it's in keeping with His plans and purposes, and it's made possible by His grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of life. Your word reminds us that you hold our very breath in your hand. But even more amazing is this gift of eternal life that that allows us to enjoy a unique relationship with you presently and a home in heaven with you forever. And not only a unique relationship with you, but a sanctifying relationship with each other. Thank you for this spiritual family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Enable us to spur one another on, increasingly engaging with each other, inviting accountability as we work out our salvation, both individually and collectively, as a localized expression of the body of Christ. By your power and for your glory, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.